Welcome to episode one of SeedPod, the podcast that reflects the communities of Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows back to themselves through the eyes of five co-hosts and numerous guests. We gratefully acknowledge that we're broadcasting to you from the unceded traditional territories of the Kwantlen First Nation and the Katsi First Nation. My name is Christian Cowley. Today, we have two segments for you. In the second segment, we'll introduce you to the company that doesn't have a CEO, turns quiet people into main stage stars, and embodies many of the principles that excite my co-host, Amy Wood. But first, I'll have a conversation with co-host Jack Emberley about the 100-year war on wild alouette watershed salmonids. Jack, you've written a whole lot about salmon in your newspaper opinion column called Along the Fraser. What's your, uh, what's your personal connection to salmon? In 1979, I stepped out of teaching, which was my first career, to uh, be a, a Department of Fisheries and Oceans patrol officer in the mission area. Uh, in uh, part of my uh, job at that time was to walk all of the small feeder streams from Mission up to Hope and count spawning salmon. And at that time, there were lots of fish in every one of those streams, and there aren't anymore. I'm a canoeist, an outdoors person. My wife and I, every year, would go up the river, canoe, paddle someplace, and check out those streams. Uh, over the years, we've done that until there was no point. There aren't any fish in most of them now. Once, uh, uh, on one trip in uh, 2007, when I was paddling alone, I went paddling alone on the North Alouette River. Before I got into the water, I could see hundreds of small fish fry uh, floating belly up in the water along the edge of the water. I put my canoe in and followed this trail of fish upstream. I followed it for about a kilometer. The trail never ended. There were thousands of fish, dead fish in the water. And I, when I, I went back, called up the DFO hotline, told them about it. They didn't want to come. They, I couldn't get anybody to come and check this out. Not the environment, not Environment Canada, not the DFO. DFO said it was not their job, that the source of the fish was probably something other than they looked after. So it took six weeks of hammering at their door before they finally came and did an investigation. I had collected about 100 dead fish, froze them, hoping that they would test them in their laboratory. They took the fish on protest. They didn't want to do it. But the uh, Maple Ridge News took a picture of this exchange. They took the fish, but then they, they were not able to find uh, any results. After all, it was six weeks later. And so they, uh, they weren't sure what caused the, uh, kip, the death of these fish. However, a berry company was eventually fined for working in the stream without a license. So that's my connection. I, two years later, I decided that I would, I would go to the Cohen Commission in Vancouver, 2011, and report what I had this incident to them. They thought it was a significant event, so I recorded it into the minutes of Cohen Commission. Yes, I'm a columnist for the uh, Maple Ridge News, have been for a number of years now, and I, I, am be I write a lot about salmon because of that event. During that event, I met a fellow by the name of Jeff Clayton. Jeff Clayton was the president of the Alouette River Management Society. Jeff actually was on the scene when the DFO arrived, and he identified the fish as salmonids. So they were salmon. So um, at that time, I realized that, uh, you know, the agencies responsible for protecting fish and habitat were not doing their job. We're not going to do their job. 
and the public had to step in and uh, take over where they left off. Jeff was the type of person who'd been doing this sort of work for decades. When I got to know him, I got to know him more and more, found out what his involvement was with the Alouette River and just how important his work was in getting more water in that river for salmon. And he's had to battle the same agencies that I did and government and BC Hydro all of this time just to get what salmon deserve, the right to rear and spawn in the Alouette watershed. What about you, Christian? What's your fish story? So it's quite an extensive background you got there, Jack. Mine also goes back to about 1981 when I was first a deckhand on my brother-in-law's salmon troller, and I I fished with him for for two seasons. And at at the time, I had two brothers-in-law that were salmon fishermen on trollers. Today, I have uh, none because in about the uh, mid-90s, there was a buyout of most of the salmon fishermen on the West Coast, and simply because there were no salmon to catch which has been a real problem. I'm also, you know, being a sports fisherman all my life. And for a while there, I was a spokesman for the Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows Environmental Council, which was about 13 environmentally active organizations coming together on, on common issues. Over the years, as some of the federal legislation changed, particularly under the Harper government, we sent letters to the the ministers responsible for fisheries and oceans, uh, protesting some of the removal of protections for salmon, particularly for streams. And that was in the Fisheries Act, the uh, Navigable Waters Act, and the the Water Act. So we've had a a, a fair history of being concerned about uh, salmon issues that that, uh, lasts right up till today. So Jack, I understand there's something going on with Alouette Lake and BC Hydro and water and water rights. Can you tell me a bit more about what you found out? Well, at this time, uh, BC Hydro is gearing up to do some upgrades to the Alouette Dam and to the water diversion tunnel at the far end of the uh, lake, 17 kilometers down the lake. That's the infamous uh, gates of hell where, where salmonids are entrained. You know, salmonids looking for a way to go to sea to complete their life cycle are enticed to go down that t- through that tunnel because there's the strong current rather than over the dam. And they are killed either in the tunnel, we don't know how many, but BC Hydro admits that they are entrained, they're killed in it, or in the turbines in the Stave and Hayward Lake further along. So this has been happening for over 90 years. And the people who love salmon in this community, and there are a number of them, including ARMS, First Nations and other groups, general public, they they want an end to this entrainment process. So that's what we're looking at right now. ARMS wants to reintroduce sockeye salmon, salmon generally, and there are five species or seven species really of salmonids, into the lake reservoir and the streams up there. But there's pointless at this time because the smolts, the juveniles that would be produced, go down through that tunnel and then they're killed. So we're looking at a um, BC Hydro, Department of Fisheries, BC Hydro particularly being encouraged to change their attitude about the importance of salmonids in this new age that we're in now and end entrainment. Also, make it possible for adult fish to get into the reservoir 
through the use of a fish ladder. Uh, Arms wants PC Hydro to fund a fish ladder, and they've been reluctant to do either until now. So that's the situation we're looking at right now. So um, you've you've called this in the past the hundred year war on wild Alouette watershed salmonids. What do you mean by war? It is a war against wild salmon waged by powerful, powerful forces, BC Hydro, Hydroelectric Power Company, uh, government agencies that are supposed to protect fish but are really backing the power company, uh, enabling the power company, colluding with them to prevent these fish from being reintroduced into the, uh, into the lake. Adults, the adult fish, have not been able to get above the dam. So the few that have returned, we will find they've uh, gotten as far as the base of the dam and then jumped onto the rocks and beat their heads, uh, beat themselves to death on the rocks, till very recently, actually. So it's a war on the adult salmon. It's a war on the juvenile salmon, which are trying to out-migrate and are being entrained and killed. And the on the other side of this battleground are these people within a community who from the ground up have been trying to save, to get these fish back, to make life easier for them, to bring back many of the fish that we had up there and were, it was a very productive watershed. And they have struggled, you know, with, with sticks and stones and bows against a, an opponent that's, that's had all the big guns. So, yeah, that's very definitely been a bit of a war on salmon. So the, the, the geographic context for this story, for, for those that are less familiar with uh, Alouette Lake and the Alouette River system and the watershed, uh, there's a, a very nearby system called the Stave system, which has hydroelectric power uh, generating stations on it and further down on what we call uh, locally Hayward Lake which is called the Ruskin Power Generation System. So there's really three different uh, watersheds that are involved here that all have hydroelectric power generating stations. And as we'll find out from the history uh, of the Alouette system, the dam that's there was there built precisely to hold water back for the Stave Lake system. And it's still an ongoing issue today. Can you tell me a little bit about that, uh, Jack? Well, the, um, the Stave Lake system, hydroelectric system, includes the Alouette, Stave Falls, and Ruskin hydroelectric generating stations. So the um, Stave Falls generating station in Stave Lake, the Ruskin generating station, and the Hayward Lake Reservoir and Re- Ruskin Dam. That's, that's the, uh, the area that we're talking about you, you begin to see the two systems, the Stave and the Hayward, they are supplied by wa- water from uh, Alouette Lake Reservoir. That's why the Alouette Lake Reservoir is so important. So that's kind of the, the geographic context for this story. Why is it pertinent today that we, were, we take a good look at what BC Hydro and the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, or, or DFO, and the Provincial Ministry of Environment, why is it important that we look at these today? Currently, there's a mandatory review of BC Hydro's treatment of the Alouette River watershed system. BC Hydro plans to make safety upgrades to Alouette Dam and the 100-year-old water diversion tunnel that we talked about that directs water from the north end of the Alouette to Stave Lake. 
This tunnel is used to supply water for the generation of hydroelectric power at Stave Falls and Ruskin. So let's hear from uh, Jeff Clayton. Jeff is a, uh, now a director of the Alouette River Management Society. He was one of the co-founders of that group in 1996, 1994. Here's what Jeff's response was to my question. What was it like negotiating with BC Hydro to address the needs of wild salmon on the Alouette? Difficult, extremely difficult. So, same question regarding DFO. How would you how would you uh, characterize the attitudes and behaviors of BC Hydro throughout your dealings with them? Un- uncaring in the '60s, no concept that the small streams uh, and rivers in the Lower Mainland may be their last chance for sockeye and some of these endangered species now that were cut off at Big Bar and other issues in the interior, and they totally disregarded them. And now they, they, they should be realizing this might be their only hope. And they've, DFO is a hidebound government division that seems to be focused with satisfying their meeting heads in Ottawa. And I totally, totally support the First Nations who have now come out, expressed by Alex Morton the other day, is that we need a a West Coast division of the DFO with uh, key directorships of of First Nations sitting on that board. And we need autonomy on the West Coast, not complete autonomy, but we need more autonomy on the West Coast in order to address these issues. They won't be addressed by the bureaucrats in Ottawa. And this has been proven over and over and over again. Okay, Jeff. Now, you mentioned the Ministry of the Environment, you know, that signed on to this this deal where they get an exemption from the FISH Act. How would you characterize the MOE's attitudes and behavior over the same period? It's an interesting question. There's always been a, a conflict at, at our group's table between the MOE and the DFO because these were considered in the early days kokanee. And it was a mom and pop fishery in the uh, the kids in the Alouette Reservoir slash lake to go up and fish for kokanee. And that was under provincial jurisdiction. So when these issues came up and it was finally determined from genomic investigations that they were sockeye, I think it caught both the DFO and the MOE kind of facing each other, like wondering who really did have the jurisdiction here. I I think clearly it is the DFO, but the fact that they called them in to sign that in 2010, that Section 35 had, shows that MOE don't want to give up the jurisdiction on this fish either, which were are being impacted. So I would say the the MOE are just as culpable. And of course, the Water Rights Act, now under uh, Forest Lands Natural Resources Operations Program, which is the division now the Water Rights Branch is in, they they are very much a government's servant, but they do have legal responsibilities. And certainly uh, that's been one of the biggest disgraces in the way that has been operated over the years going back 
to when it was first formed in 1909 because they never had, you know, it wasn't maybe malicious. They just didn't have the personnel to go out in the field and monitor these water licenses. And they're still not doing it, which means that once you get a license for water, it's 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 pretty well a given that you're going to be your own uh, monitor um, that you stay within the limits. And BC Hydro have shown time and again in the past that they didn't do that. Wow, these uh, these government agencies really haven't lived up to their obligations. No, they haven't. And when we look at Jeff's history with BC Hydro and the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and the Ministry of Environment, that's the provincial agency, and we look at them over the past several decades, we can see patterns of irresponsible behavior when it comes to protecting Alouette watershed fish and habitat. Today, Simply trusting the government, their agencies, and power corporations to do the right thing would not be appropriate, as you'll hear when we follow Jeff through time in our future podcasts. So don't forget to join us next month to hear the continuation of this story of the Hundred-Year War on the Wild Alouette Watershed Salmonids. So now we're going to change gears and I'm going to chat with co-host Amy Wood about her organization. Shine Bootcamp, which is a speaker accelerator for women and non-binary individuals. These are the people that you're not seeing on stage at seminars and conferences, despite their being highly qualified and having lots of experience. We'll also find out why Shine Bootcamp does not have a CEO. When we get together, life gets better, the world feels right. So don't think you've got nothing, you'll bring sugar, and I'll bring spice. And we'll make pie, we'll make pie, we'll make pie. A slice of life We'll make pie We'll make pie We'll make pie A slice of life I'd like to welcome Amy to our conversation now. You're one of the three uh, co-creators of Shine Bootcamp, and the three of you also run the organization. You describe it as a speaker accelerator. I'd like to start off by asking you to explain what you mean by speaker accelerator. Yeah, thank you, Christian. So that's a really great question, actually, because accelerator is a little bit jargony. But generally, an accelerator is a condensed program that takes a student from point A to point B. Um, In the case of Shine, uh, that point A would be perhaps somebody who wants to speak at an event or a conference or something, but doesn't have all of the tools that she needs to do that. And then point B would be she is essentially events ready. So she has all of the tools to speak at an event, um, such as a talk, um, the confidence to actually get up on stage, perhaps a recording of her talk or a really detailed description, uh, talk title description of her talk so that she can at least pitch it and um, secure some speaking gigs. So that's what the Shine Speaker Accelerator is, is taking a woman from 
wanting to speak on stage to actually having everything she needs to actually secure those speaking gigs. Hmm, that sounds great. Can you give us a brief history of your career before you started, Shine? What what brought you to uh, to to create this thing? Yeah, um, it's funny because I I almost feel like I'm going to do what I we teach our mentees not to do, which is like downplay my experience. So I'm not going to do that. Um, but basically, I I went to school for professional writing many years ago, uh, probably. Oh gosh, over a decade now. Um, and then right after I graduated, I went to work at a local health and wellness magazine called Alive, uh, which maybe you've heard of that. I have. And then I worked there for a few years and then I actually worked in insurance for a little while, which is where I met my husband, Chris. And then I started working at a tech company called Unbounce. And I was actually in customer support for a while. And then I moved into their marketing team and I did lots of copywriting. I wrote lots of blog posts and I executed marketing campaigns for um, their customers and stuff. And actually that's where I met Shine co-creators, Alejandra Porta and Stephanie Greaser. Okay. So what led the three of you uh, to conceive of Shine? Yeah, it was uh, a wild story a little bit. I will condense it. a little bit for our listenership. But essentially, Unbounce put on a conference every year called the CTA Conf. And it was a conference for marketers. And I think they were probably in their third or fourth year running CTA Conf. And the CEO of Unbounce, um, Rick Peralt, he said, hey, why don't we make it just a mandate that we're going to have 50% women and 50% men presenting at the conference. And as a blogger for the um, the Unbounce blog, I was tasked with now writing a blog post about this. And yeah, it's actually interesting. Um, I was going to actually ghostwrite this piece for Rick. And I, I talked to him and he is he is awesome, um, and he's been a huge champion for gender diversity and stuff. But I talked to him, and I just felt like he wasn't the right person to be collaborating with on this piece. So I said, you know what? Steph has been running. She, she started the very first uh, CTA conf. She ran the whole thing, like totally bootstrapped, um, and she obviously had help, but um, it was her kind of baby. So I was like, you know, Steph has done this before. I think that I should work with Steph on this piece. So I kind of pushed to work with Steph on this, especially because we were talking about gender parity. I was like, I would love to work with another Mm. woman on this piece. So I approached Steph um, and she was game to work on this piece with me. So we kind of actually collaborated on this piece. It was actually the first time ever on the Unbounced blog that we had two authors credited to a piece, which I just think it's also such a beautiful start to the organization because it's just built on collaboration and stuff. Right. And then we approached Ale because she was uh, working as a designer at Unbounce. And we said, hey, do you want to do some custom illustrations or graphics or something for this piece? And she was really interested. So she created the custom graphics for that. And yeah, so we, we wrote that post and then it just kind of went viral after that point. Okay. Yeah. So, um, sorry, I know this is a little bit long, but this is kind of our origin story. So, 
so we launched this piece. It went viral and lots of people were interested in it. And actually some kind of dramatic stuff happened. Some men actually tried to co-opt the, we we started a hashtag that we were using. We started a um, directory of women who were speakers. And then some men actually tried to co-opt that and co-opt the hashtag. They actually bought the domain. They started selling t-shirts with it. Oh. Yeah. Um, so it was all just, it was very surreal. And we kind of decided, you know what, we're not going to use this as just another way to like monetize something. We actually want to do something to actually solve the problem. So we had this idea of, hey, why don't we oh, wow. actually host <laughs> an event where women can come who have not previously spoken on stage, but who may want to, and they can gain the skills they can work with like seasoned professional speakers to learn how to actually deliver a talk, how to actually build a talk. Um, we can hire somebody to do videography. We can hire somebody to give them headshots. And then we actually give them an opportunity to present their talk in front of a live audience. And because this was kind of the catch-22 that we were working with, we noticed when we wrote this piece that a lot of conference organizers said, like, yeah, we want to have gender diversity at our conference, but there just aren't en enough qualified women speakers. And so then we're like, well, how do you get qualified if you can't get on stage to get that experience? So we kind of were like, how do we just bypass that? Like, let's not that have that be a problem. How do we bypass that? Give them the experience so they can secure those gigs. Right. Yeah. But yeah, just create that kind of, we call it like a, a simulated learning experience, essentially. So we simulate a conference experience for them so that they can then secure those gigs. So we launched the first Shine. It was actually called Center Stage. It was called something else. Um, and it was actually completely uh, funded by Unbounce. They gave us $10,000 and said, hey, we really want you guys to run this or you women to run this. Um, so myself and a bunch of other people in the company ran this. And we had 15 women come from all over, actually, all over, the, all, all over North America and um, we hosted the first pre-shine, but shine. And then it just kind of took off from there. We decided, hey, we want to keep doing this. And we all left Unbounce and we thought we want to actually give this a proper go. So we kind of talked to talked to the leadership in Unbounce and we're like, hey, we know we kind of ran this under Unbounce, but we really want to make this like a proper organization. And they have been nothing but supportive. They've They've sponsored our program ever since every single year so yeah it's been wonderful oh that's great so who exactly is shine aimed at shine is for women initially it was kind of for women in like tech and marketing because those were who our coaches were so we really needed to make sure that our coaches were matching the um, audience that we were targeting but now we've expanded. We have lots of different coaches with lots of different experience working with many different types of clients. So essentially, our audience is women who are wanting to get up on stage, who want to present at events or conferences, whether in person or now virtual. My colleague Alejandra expresses it well, actually. It's people that you wouldn't think that they are maybe insecure, like they they're like VPs or directors and they're still have like sometimes like the imposter syndrome 
So it's kind of amazing to see, yeah, the shift of just getting out of your comfort zone and tackling like a fear that maybe you've had for a long time that it's public speaking. And once you do it, how much it frees you and all the growth in either getting promotions or salary raises and speaking up in meetings. So people coming out with their own businesses, doing their own brand. It's really amazing to see the evolution of people that do shine. So one thing that we noticed working at Unbounce, not just at Unbounce's conference, but at other conferences that we worked at, was that you'd go to these different conferences and you'd see the exact same speakers giving the exact same presentations at every single event. I'm going to let Steph talk a little bit more about it. Speaking kind of has like a clique and there's like a clique of speakers and it's kind of like, oh, it's like it's like you sitting at the cool kids club. And I'm like, that's so bullshit. And we need to be like breaking that because everybody has something to teach. Everybody has a story to share and value to give. And I guess I, when I see those, and I say cliques, but I see these people that have the microphone or the stage, like we need to be listening to other people and letting them have a turn to speak and share. But then also part of that was like I was talking about that catch 22, where there just weren't qualified women speakers. And it seemed as though and this is kind of supported by some data, I think, tertiary data, it seemed that conference organizers were perhaps more likely to take a chance on a male speaker than they were on a female speaker. So there's this systemic bias in there. Yeah, systemic bias. And then I I guess also coupled that with, you know, a lot of women have felt, um, and I I can speak from personal experience too, but a lot of the women who go through Shine um, have felt throughout their life or at times in their life, like their opinion didn't matter or their voice didn't matter or their perspective didn't have value. And so it's also really difficult to put up your hand and put yourself forward when you've perhaps been silenced in the past or you've been treated as though you didn't have something of value to put forward, whereas that's not necessarily always the same experience for a man in a professional setting. So, In our conversations, uh, you and I have conjectured about what the world might be like if the true diversity of perspectives, opinions, and lived experience was better represented at uh, decision-making tables and in policymakers. So Shine seems to be a great beginning on getting some of those voices out there. Can you expand on the impact uh, you might see from new voices coming to the stage uh, and policy roles? Yeah, thank you. So I think generally, and this is something that one of my previous leaders would always say, uh, his name is Justin, and he was a really great leader. And he always talked about specifically around introverts and extroverts. And he always wanted to create an environment where introverts were able to thrive as well and where their ideas were also heard because ultimately he just wanted the best ideas to win. And so I kind of feel like that's a similar a similar approach and a similar belief that I have is when we have more diverse perspectives, I really think that we're going to get have the best ideas put forward and we're going to find the best solution. So I mean, we're dealing with so many 
things right now, whether it's environmentalism or sorry, environmental or the pandemic right now that we're dealing with. There's so many existential crises crises that we're dealing with right now that we need the most brilliant, the most creative solutions to try and address these things. And if we're systematically and systemically excluding people from conversations, then it's just simply not going to happen. We're not going to get those best ideas. Also, I, I, I feel like in our society, we have a tendency for this very like paternalistic approach to, well, we know better. So we're going to make decisions on behalf of communities as well. And what we think is best for them. And that's anytime you exclude people and their communities from the decision-making process of what happens in their own communities, it's, it's going to fail. It's absolutely going to fail. So I really do think that by making, by empowering people with not only those tools, but also a platform, like we also try and make shine a platform as well. Like through our social media, we also recommend people for conferences all the time. We also kind of feel like we have this privilege and this platform to also amplify the people who we do encounter through Shine, who we feel like, damn, that person (laughs) needs to be heard. That person has has something special that we've not heard before that was totally mind-blowing to us. And so yeah, we feel like it's our responsibility to um, share that and amplify that as well. Great. I think your conversation with Stephanie kind of alluded to some of that. Here's what she has to say about that. And it's not only the person that has the mouth mouth that's the loudest, because sometimes people just don't speak up. And it's like, you need to approach them and ask them because they're not going to, they might not be rallying cries. They not be the loudest voice. And I found that sometimes you need to make space for that because just because they're not raising their voice doesn't mean that they don't have something to contribute or say. So Shine is helping people to overcome any reservations they have about putting themselves forward. And it's having a spillover effect into their personal lives, uh, kind of emboldening them to, to take on new ventures and to put their ideas forward. So it's, it's improving their professional lives and they're basically reaching or affirming uh, their own potential and are more likely to, to reach it. You've told me some more interesting facts about Shine as an organization in the governance of it that could also be the start, uh, I'm hoping would be a start among new young entrepreneurs like yourselves. Shine Bootcamp does not have a person with the title CEO or president. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. So this is, as Steph would call it, a little bit of a spicy issue within our organization. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When uh, we started Shine, I think there wasn't necessarily consensus over this, actually, about whether we would have a CEO or not. Right. It's been a bit of an evolution. I would say we're actually still in the process of figuring out exactly what our governance looks like. The approach that we're coming from on this is that we don't want to make any assumptions and we don't want to accept anything as truths when they're not perhaps in fact truths. So a truth being that you have to have a hierarchical organization in order for things to run well. Right. I 
challenge that as a truth. So, so challenging yes. convention. <laughs> yes. It's something that I do often. Um, not everyone appreciates it, but <laughs> <laughs> so things like, yeah, so having a CEO or a president, somebody in that top dog role, and then everything kind of trickling down from there. That's not really how I believe is the best way for an organization to run in an organization that empowers all of its employees, all of its contractors, basically anybody it works with. We want to be just like how in Shine in our external mission is to empower women to own their voices and to take up space and to believe that they have something of value. Mm -hmm. We want to be that empowerment inward as well. So we want to share that empowerment and spread that empowerment within. And even though we are a team of three right now, we do work with a lot of other people. We have tons of different contractors, whether it's our coaches, whether it's some people who support us in terms of helping us run the conference or helping us with operational stuff. And we don't want there to be dissonance between what we're doing externally and the persona that we have and what we're doing internally. We want to live and work in integrity, both within and outside of the organization. Okay. So how's that for, for example, for your subcontractors that are maybe providing your coaching? How do they know who to talk to for a decision? You know, I need a decision on this or that. Who do I go to? Is, is that difficult with this structure? Or is it something that is you would have done anyway, and it just, it becomes more of a consensus governance model. Yeah. You know what? To be honest, it is tricky. And I will say that it's tricky, not necessarily because working within a non-hierarchical organization is tricky, but because we just don't have our shit together. We don't have our, we don't have our stuff together just yet. So we're actually taking a little bit of a break right now in between cohorts. And something that we are focusing on is really fleshing out our roles and our accountabilities and our authority. This is something that I learned about in a book on holacracy, which is kind of an alternative management approach that is non-hierarchical, but it relies on really well-documented roles and accountabilities and regular governance meetings. So it's not necessarily something that we've decided we're going to adopt 100%, but it definitely gave us a lot of resources to better document our roles and responsibilities so that those things are very clear. And I think as long as you have really well-documented roles, accountabilities, authorities, and you have those regular meetings to ensure that if there's the way they, they talk about it in Holacracy is if there's a tension, then it's processed. So if you butt up against something where it wasn't clear whose responsibility it was, then in that next regular governance meeting, you say, hey, I did this thing, but I don't really think that this falls within my role. Right. I'm going to suggest that it goes under this role. And then you document that. And then whoever owns that role from that point forward will then have that accountability. I, I know that in my own early experience of management, quite often my role as a mid-manager was to simply ask the team members, we worked in teams of five people, mm -hmm. uh, what the next step was and then the step beyond that. 
And mm-hmm. if I could get them to talk about those steps, whatever issue they come to me sort of at loggerheads with yeah. would be solved because they'd already, you know, figured out what those next steps were and they weren't sort of stuck at that uh, point of conflict. Yeah. And that was like 90% of, of being a manager at that level. Yeah. So normally a CEO actually plays a navigational, mm-hmm, a navigational mm-hmm. role. Where, you know, the, every door is the right door is, is what we say in social services. Yeah. Sometimes you, if you don't have the answers, then you take the person with you <laughs> and find the, the, either the person or service or resource that they can access to, to solve the issues that they're looking for. So there's another set of intriguing principles that your team is applying to shine. Actually, sorry, I'd like to yep. just add to to what you were just um, talking okay. about. So you talked about the CEO being kind of that navigation. Yeah. And one one actually another thing that we implemented, which addresses that, I believe, is we spent m- several hours working on a holistic context, which is a framework that I learned about from I can't remember his name. But he is the owner of Very Edible Gardens. Perhaps we can include it in the show notes, um, what a holistic context is. Okay. But essentially, the holistic context is a framework for decision-making, for streamlined decision-making in the short and the long term. So it consists of a statement of purpose, and then it goes into quality of life statements. Yeah. And then the third tier is modes of production. Okay. So we went through all of this. We detailed our our whole statement of purpose, we were which we were all on board with. Then we talked about our quality of life statements, such as, for example, like we all have very different lives. We work uh, very different hours and schedules. So we decided we're going to have two days where we will be all working on the same day, but then anything other than that is kind of like free range. You work when you need to. We also documented how we're going to communicate with one another, whether it be on WhatsApp for very specific things, whether it be on email for specific things or other tools like that. So we have done a lot of that legwork in terms of decision-making. And so we can always reference that. If we're in a position where we're representing the company, we can always reference the holistic context and in particular our statement of purpose and ask ourselves, does what we're looking at actually, is it aligned with our statement of purpose okay. or is it not? So that that kind of also helps with that decision making. Right. So uh, I like to call that uh, going back to first principles. Mm, yes. In, yeah. In governance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's being used right now in a lot of design work that's kind of innovative, particularly mm-hmm. in the electric car industry. It's where the first context that I learned about it. Uh, and I'm curious to see it uh, to come to fruition in, in other forms, such as your, your organization. So the other intriguing thing you told me about the company mm-hmm. was that you plan to cap your growth and that growth at all costs will definitely not be your mantra. Like mm-hmm. it is so many other new enterprises that, you know, they want to start small and get big real fast. Yeah. And one more thing that you actually welcome competitors in the same space, viewing them as allies. So you'd mm-hmm. rather collaborate than compete. What's the rationale for both those things, the the scale and then the competition? And will this change 
eventually how business is conducted is is my question for you like how business is conducted everywhere broadly mm. yeah everywhere i mean are you going to start something new wow i hope so i sure hope so um yeah so okay the first the first part of this um capping growth so yeah, this is something, this is interesting because it's another one of those things that we, I think, as a society tend to accept as being a truth in that, like you said, you start small, you grow big. You know, we we all are meant to strive to make a million dollars a year and then a million dollars a month and then five million dollars a month. And I don't accept that as a truth. Um <laughs> I, I I think in terms of planning, so it's interesting, we don't have a plan to cap our growth so much as if you look at the symptoms of what happens when it is growth at all costs, we, we don't want to get into that rut. So a few things that I could see happening with Shine, for example, if we don't continue to align ourselves with our statement of purpose, for example, mm-hmm. if we don't continue to think of the problem that we're solving is that we might need to perpetuate the problem in order to continue operating. So at its core, if Shine is to empower women, if we are requiring the disempowerment of women in order to continue operating as an organization, that is not worth it for me or for any of us. Right. So it's not that you don't want to grow. It's that it's that at all costs. Yeah, it's at all costs. And also, we don't want to degrade the integrity of what we're doing. And we don't want to degrade the mission of what we're doing. And it from what I've seen, and I'm not saying that this is impossible, but from what I've seen and the organizations that I've been in, when and I don't know what the threshold is, but it does seem to be there's a threshold to everybody believing in that mission. You know, the more people you add to the organization and the more, the more, you know, for example, like you get to a certain stage and the, the, the co-creators shine co-creators, Ali, Steph and I might not be expected to be involved in the hiring process, for example. Right. And there's a real there's a real risk of degrading the mission if you're looking purely at the growth and you're looking purely at the profit and you're looking purely at those aspects versus again are we actually empowering women are we actually challenging systems of oppression both within and outside of our organization which is a part of our statement of purpose if we're no longer doing those things, then that's not an organization that I want to be part of. That's why we started our own business, right? That's why we started Shine is because we wanted to work in an organization where we felt like we were doing real, genuine, impactful work. And the minute that doesn't feel like that anymore, I think it's either time for us as a business to evolve together and an organization to evolve together in order to continue contributing in a positive and transformational way or as individuals. I don't know what that might look like, but I think that that indicates that it's time for evolution. I know my own experience. Uh, I worked in a company and I first joined the company as employee number 38 on a part-time intern basis. And I went away for nine months, worked at a different company, and I came back as employee number 127. And it had 
the, the character of the company had changed quite distinctly because they could no longer hire people with the same work values and attitudes yeah. as the uh, founders. And they were having to get a body to fill a position to do a role. And so we got some clock punchers that mm-hmm. just wanted to, you know, if they worked 15 minutes overtime, they wanted to be recognized for that and paid for it. Whereas, you know, before that it had been, okay, uh, I need to get this job done. So if it takes 15 minutes or an hour longer, I'll just stay and do it. Yeah. Um, because we're all working for the company. We want the company to succeed. So yeah, yeah. it's a very different thing. So how about the competition thing? Um, how do you view your competition as allies? Yeah, so this is this is an interesting conversation that I'd had with Steph and Ali about our competitors. So Steph is an athlete. She, I think she's done an Ironman. Um, she's ski, like she's a very good skier, and she she bikes, like she's very athletic and so and she played sports growing up so terms sports terms are really in her vernacular she uses them really really regular regularly and I was not a competitive sports player or an athlete or I did things that were like I like rock climbed um so those words are not in my vernacular so Steph uses terms like competition colloquially and she she said she used the word competitor and it kind of rubbed me the wrong way and i thought ooh i don't know i don't i don't like talking about competition you know because i don't want to be in competition right. with other organizations i don't i i don't want to be vying for somebody's money essentially i want to i want that person i want that woman who is perhaps considering taking shine, I want her to take the program that is best for her, that is going to get her to the place where she is feeling confident and secure and like she is an expert at something and that she has the tools to not even just speak at stage, but on on a stage, but perhaps just speak up more in meetings or give presentations more confidently at work or put her her name in for a job promotion, for example. So I want her to take whatever program is going to be best for her. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting having this conversation because Steph actually has the same belief as I do. We just had to come to it from a different place. She talks about how, oh, well, my friends and I are all competitive with one another, but we're competitive in a way that like celebrates each other. And we celebrate our successes and we cheer each other on. And I thought, oh, wow. Yeah, I do love that. So I guess when it comes to our competitors in terms of, you know, organizations or people who um, are in the speaker training sphere, for example, if they're true, if they're truly competitors, then it means they share our purpose in earnest and if they share our purpose in earnest, then we want them to succeed as well, because there's no possible way that we can serve all of those those women who right. want to gain these skills and who want to gain this confidence and stuff. There's no way that we can serve all of them. And so we're happy for them to take another program or we're happy for them to go with another coach. And then if there are... <laughs> organizations who perhaps don't share our 
purpose in earnest, then we don't we don't even consider them competitors, to be honest. <laughs> so, so um, to summarize, I, you tell me that Shine Bootcamp empowers people to take full control of their public persona and feel as bold as they actually are when they're in the spotlight. And this applies to um, not just sort of white gender. Mm, what's a what's the proper terminology here? Gender standard women, but I understand it also. You encourage people of white, white cis, cis, yeah, white white cis women. Yeah, that you're in aiming it at uh, people that just don't feel welcomed to the stage prior to this. So it's it's for anyone that does, that doesn't feel empowered to to go up on the stage. Mm -hmm. And so that um, you're giving the opportunity for new voices to have a chance to be heard and to serve as an inspiration for others that are, are similar, but probably traditionally left in the, the background. And this potential to radically change decision-making at many different levels, once it actually kind of gets out there and you've been around for a while, could really change the business world or, uh, and policy-making in, in my sort of frame of mind. And in addition to that, your approach to organizational governance may provide a refreshing change to the way, the traditional way that uh, corporations have operated, which could also open some new doors for people that have been intimidated in the more conventional settings of the corporate boardroom. So you've got a lot to be proud of. Where do you think, uh, how far do you think you can take this? Well, thank you so much, Christian. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes. And... I'm so inspired by all the women who go through our program. I'm also so grateful that I work with Steph and Allie, who are literally the best people I could ever imagine building a business with, let alone, I, it's just such a privilege to work with them. Yeah, I don't know how far we can take it, but we are giving it our all. We're giving it so much love and creativity. And we're open. We're open to just seeing where it goes. That sounds great. And so that's a wrap for episode one of SeedPod. If you're curious about the hosts that bring this podcast to you, check out episode zero, which features our self-introductions and the aims of the podcast. And if you liked what you heard in this podcast, or sorry, in this episode, and you want to hear more detail, the full conversations between our hosts and their guests are also available in separate recordings on our channel. And there's an almost two-hour conversation between Jack Emberley and Alouette River Salmon historian Jeff Clayton, and about a 55-minute conversation between Amy and her colleagues Stephanie and Alejandra. So episode one was produced by Jack Emberley, Amy Wood, and Christian Cowley, and edited by Ella Trelevin and Christian Cowley. Look for episode two next month when Alicia and Arshia discuss insomnia and COVID impacts through a youth lens. And we'll close with Jack's song, Sucking the River Dry. They're sucking the river dry. Goodbye, chums. We love you, everyone. We'd like to keep you with us, but your journey has begun. There's herons on the shoreline, chums, and osprey in the sky. But we never believe they'd suck the river dry. Goodbye, chums. We pray you make it back. We set you free on bended knee, a tear in every eye. 
you on your way. But any day the pumps will roar and suck the river dry by. They're sucking the river dry, drunk, and sucking the river dry. The EC and the DFO will happily stand by. The WSB says, don't blame me, I'm just a licensed guy. And all the while, the pumps were on to suck our river dry by. Chumps, not a single politician of any shape or stripe would raise a voice in protest to help you with your plight. It's up to you and me, my friends, to roast them from their dens and do the only thing that's right. The herons on the sugar line chums and eagles in the sky. 